The holidays can be a funny time, so it's a good idea to keep your sense of humor. My voice was off-key and everyone looked a little embarrassed for me, but I couldn't stop singing. Tonight on the Public Radio Hour, it's a sundial Christmas as we celebrate seasonal stories and memories with our Sundial Writers Corner. Let me repeat that in the same way I heard it in my head that day. There was no boat! We absolutely would not let anyone sing Christmas carols until after Thanksgiving. Let's go see if the mouse is eating the bird seed. A blessing of family during Christmas time. The gift of the Magi. You might have noticed the voice of a young Catherine Tucker Wyndham. We'll hear two never-before-broadcast commentaries from her. Our Sundial Writers' Corner brings you good tidings and cheer in the next hour. It's a Sundial Christmas, right after this news update. It's a sundial Christmas here on the Public Radio Hour. I'm Brett Tannehill with Dory Knott co-producing. This is our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio stories. We hope to stoke your sense of holiday humor and wonder with some homemade radio stories, courtesy of our Sundial Writers' Corner. Listen also for two never-heard-before Christmas stories from the legendary Catherine Tucker Wyndham. But first, let's go back to the fourth grade. Here's Sundial writer Melissa Ford Thornton. Fourth grade, December. Snowflakes cut from paper were taped to the classroom window. Candy canes peeked from the advent calendar, draped off the end of Mrs. D's desk, dangling temptation. Only three days until Christmas vacation. Only one more sleep until the Christmas play that would take place on stage in the cafeteria. Already, metal folding chairs were arranged in a semicircle for parents, grandparents, and friends to watch our entire fourth grade reenact Jesus' birth. I attended public school, but this was the Deep South. Church and state often overlapped and tried to play nice. As excited as my friends and I were, there was a little rumbling of discontent among my small group concerning the leads. Joseph wasn't a popular boy. He'd transferred to our school before Thanksgiving and hadn't yet figured out the pecking order of elementary school-aged boys. But he had really great wavy hair that looked biblical, and that secured his role. Mary was the fifth-grade teacher's daughter, Lorraine. None of us yet knew the word nepotism, but we still walked around with a strange sense of the unfairness of it all. Why did Jesus have one mommy? Couldn't there at least be a stepmom so there could be twice as many leading roles for girls? At recess, I met up with two of my best friends. They both had pretty good parts. One was cast as the angel who got to say words like, Behold and Hark. The other got to wear a cute camel costume. They both whispered about Lorraine saying she's bossy and spoiled. I tried to think of her good qualities. All I came up with was that she had the shiniest black hair That made me feel worse. I was envious of her starring role and now her hair. I was going to hell in a handbasket for sure. That's what I'd overheard Mrs. D say to our principal one day when she found petrified chewing gum on the underside of an eraser. Kids these days, they're going to hell in a handbasket. I wasn't sure what that meant, but it didn't sound like a good thing. Even with all the growing excitement of winter break, I felt a bit down for two reasons. I'd been relegated to the purgatory of any school play, the choir. I was one of several in an anonymous group, and we didn't get to wear a costume. And then, of all things, we were told not to sing. The music will be played over the loudspeaker, Mrs. D informed us. Reason two, unlike everyone else I knew, my mom worked outside the home. She wasn't able to come to my brownie badge ceremony. I wasn't sure she'd be one of the proud faces beaming during curtain call. That's when even the choir got to come on stage and hold hands with wise men. The afternoon of the play arrived. Mom told me I needed to get a ride to and from school with my friend's mom, my friend the camel. It was a long day. I didn't want the candy cane from the advent calendar when they were shared. I gave mine to Joseph. He gave it to Mary. 
Finally, the bell rang and we were dismissed to the playground for an extra long recess, then ushered into the hall outside the cafeteria, where we sat crisscross applesauce and ate a snack dinner. Mrs. D. clapped her hands and we lined up in order of importance. Mary, Joseph, Jesus was a baby dollar, I feel sure he would have been first. The angel, wise men, camel, sheep, donkey, and cow, they had to get into costume and marched out with their heads held high. Wise men left, angels right. I was left in the hall with the rest of the choir. We had practiced how to move our lips to hark the herald angels sing, but then we were told we had another song that would end the play. Maybe Mrs. D. had seen our downcast faces and was trying to cheer us. Y'all have the finale. You will bring the house down, she said. Well, that sounded almost as bad as going to hell in a handbasket. She handed each of us a flashlight and showed us how to hold it up just under our chins, illuminating our faces. First, we would sing the angel song. Then the lights would be dimmed. That was our cue to switch on our flashlights. Cars began to pull up. We were marched to the end of the hallway to wait until the audience was seated. It was a short play, but 20 minutes can seem a lifetime. I hadn't seen my mom's car in the parking lot. I didn't see her come through the hall. I just wanted this over with. Suddenly, we were told to stand up, but walk slowly as music began playing. The loudspeaker crackled a few times, but joyful all the nations rise came through clearly enough for us to move our mouths mimicking the words. Then I saw him, my dad. He was in the front row and smiling. Mrs. D. shook a pair of maracas and dimmed the lights. R.Q. I switched on my flashlight and glanced at my fellow choir members. We looked spooky and kind of awesome at the same time. Feliz Navidad, Feliz Navidad. We walked onto the stage and for some reason, I just started belting out the words. Feliz Navidad, Prospero Año e Felicidad. I knew this song, every word. My father was born in Mazatlan, Mexico. He played carols, silver bells, and it came upon a midnight clear on his big hi-fi in the living room every December. The words were sung in Spanish, like most of his records, so I guess I never thought of it as Christmas music. My voice was off-key and everyone looked a little embarrassed for me, but I couldn't stop singing. Then something happened. Slowly, every parent in the first row stood and began singing along with me, louder than the singer on the speaker, voices off-key and pitch-perfect joined. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas from the bottom of my heart. My dad was standing too. Though it was still dark, I knew he saw me, one small girl, his daughter, in an anonymous chorus. In 1956, my father cared about his newspaper, his TV, and being left alone, particularly by me. At five, I was full of questions. Daddy, how come they don't read the newspaper backwards instead of forward? The rumbling voice behind the paper said, Dang chaps, I should have stayed in the Merchant Marines. That kind of nostalgic father-son bonding extended to Christmas mornings dragging my folks out of their warm beds at the first gray hints of a promised new day. Dad turned on the TV in the living room, collapsed into his chair, and read his newspaper while enjoying the 3 a.m. test pattern. Under the twinkling tree, I saw a square box, the size of the boat I knew I had requested, earned, and expected that year. I saw a silver J that was all I could read of my name, Open your present. I tore open my boat. There was no boat. Let me repeat that in the same way I heard it in my head that day. There was no boat. There was a small case with a hinged white top. You like it, said the voice. My father would never lie to me. I opened the lid and saw the small turntable. The voice said, It's a phonograph monophonic. You can keep it in your room, away from us. Boat? 
Every child knows a moment when they realize that they are truly orphans and can never trust their parents again. I was about to go in search of more productive things, like torturing Boots the family cat. Look in the bottom, Mom said. Two books. Books were the things from the kindergarten I had been kicked out of. Inside one was a small orange vinyl record and a sleeve. See, Mom took the record out and placed it on the turntable. The record will read the book to you. The record made a hissing, static sound as I calculated ways to get even. The cat was in trouble. The record said, hop on pop, as Mom's finger moved and commanded the words from the page. I still wasn't sure. And you can learn to read all by yourself. Just move your finger and say the words yourself until you can do it without the record. Then when your smart aleck cousin Harold comes over, you can show everybody that you are as smart as him. I tried it by myself. Hop on pop. It wasn't bad. Mom beamed and the newspaper rattled. I'd never been called smart. Trouble? Yes. Smart? No. Then I looked at the second book. On the cover was the biggest boat I had ever seen. Mom said, that one's a Bible story, Jesus or something. I set the needle down on that record. Noah built the biggest boat ever. All Christmas morning, I turned pages over and over until the biggest boat ever built lived inside me, forever mine. Mom said, maybe we've found something he likes more than trouble. Maybe we should buy him more books. The voice said, hell, if it will keep him from sticking the cat's tail on the light sockets, I'll buy him every book he ever wants. I barely heard. At that moment, I faded away from the world of mom and dad to the world of books. Books would become my best friends, my wisest teachers, and always my true parents. Mom and Dad kept their promise and bought me every book I ever wanted to keep me out of their hair. And Boots the Cat lived a long, happy life. That was A Christmas for the Books by Michael Gillibo. And of course, no harm ever became of Boots. What kind of Christmas story would that be? Michael is also one of the owner-operators of Madison Press Publishing, which spearheaded last year's Sundial Writer's Corner book, 52 Weeks of Sun, available on Amazon. We also got a fourth-grade Felice Navidad from Melissa Ford Thornton. You can catch Melissa at live storytelling events around the valley or find her at the Historic Princess Theater in downtown Decatur, where she serves as communications director. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 HD1 Huntsville. And it's a Sundial Christmas, full of holiday stories told by our Sundial Writers Corner. In this next segment, we'll hear from three of the Corner's longest-time contributors, including Rosemary McMahon and Judy Cameron, and master storyteller Catherine Tucker Wyndham. Mrs. Wyndham was also an award-winning journalist, author, and photographer. Let's head down memory lane with this never-heard-before story from her earliest days on the radio, and remember Christmas during the college years, back in the 1930s. on the campus of Huntington College in Montgomery. Huntington College. Graduated there. Spent four Christmas seasons on that campus a long time ago. It was a simpler time then. We had Christmas trees. It was Depression years, the late 1930s. I remember it was always after Thanksgiving, after we'd been home for our Thanksgiving holidays, that we would begin the official celebration of Christmas. 
And up on Fourth Hanson, where I lived, that celebration would begin with the singing of Christmas carols. We absolutely would not let anyone sing Christmas carols until after Thanksgiving. And then that first night after we were all back on campus after our visits back home for the holidays at Thanksgiving, we drag out our bags of dirty laundry. I don't I guess we always had dirty laundry. But we'd put those bags down the hall like big cushions and we'd all sit on those bags of dirty laundry and began singing all of our favorite carols. Oh come all ye faithful and silent night and joy to the world and away in a manger. And always they had to be carols. They, they were not the popular Christmas songs we sang that first night. And it was a great tradition there. And we had a Christmas tree down in the front parlor. I suppose the tree may have come from the campus itself. Mr. Moore probably brought it on his tractor and put it up there in the dormitory parlor. And we exchanged small gifts. This was the Depression time. And I still have three beautiful handkerchiefs that Lil Roberts gave me and a book of poetry from my roommate Martha Rankin. And then when it was almost time to go home for Christmas, there would be a pageant in the chapel, a reenactment of the Christmas story with Mary and Joseph and the babe, and the good voices on the campus singing in the chorus, and Mr. Jensen playing the organ under the green window. And it was all so beautiful and so simple and so pure. In spite of World War II raging in faraway places, my mother somehow was managing our rationing coupons so that nearly every day the special aromas of treats in the oven reminded us that Christmas was near. But the one thing that was very different was the added excitement when my mother announced that my big brother Ralph, who was in the Army Air Corps, had been granted a furlough and would soon be home from his station in England. The big double doors to our front parlor were always kept closed, I suppose to avoid heating it during the cold Wisconsin winter. But when the fragrance of evergreen seeped into the hall, my brother Ronnie and I lay down on the floor to try to peek through the cracks. We couldn't see anything, but cold, balsam-laden air hit our faces. We stood up, and Ronnie solemnly announced, It's the North Pole in there. And I believed him because he was one of my seven big brothers. And sure enough, on Christmas Eve, when we returned from church, the parlor doors were open to a breathtaking sight. It was a huge tree, decorated with big colored lights and a glorious assortment of things, from glass ornaments to childishly crafted baubles and lead icicles artfully hung one by one. On the top stood a big red spire, which my father called God's Finger. I don't remember what I got for Christmas that year, but I never will forget that tree. Most years, our tree stayed up until Epiphany, which is January 6th, but this year it wasn't taken down on schedule. Ralph had not come home. We didn't know why, but my mother cheerfully insisted that he would be walking in the back door at any moment to see that beautiful tree. And so it sat in our parlor. When we passed in the hall, we became aware of the effect of our footsteps. First a gentle rain of needles, then torrents. My father no longer plugged in the lights. Finally, ornaments began to slide down the bare branches. A couple of them fell during the night, exploding on the hardwood floor and scaring us awake. 
Mother took a spool of thread from her sewing box and tied the ornaments to the tree. No arguments from my older brothers and sisters could convince my steadfast mother to remove that grotesque skeleton in the parlor. Our lives moved apprehensively into gray February. Then, one morning around Valentine's Day, when we woke up, there he was, sitting at the foot of the bed. He smelled like wet wool. Through my sleepy eyes, I recognized the olive drab uniform. I know who you are, I said. He laughed. I know who you are, too. Did you see the Christmas tree? He smiled a broad, satisfied smile. Yep, he said. It sure is beautiful. One Christmas morning, when our son and daughter still lived at home, and we were in the midst of unwrapping presents, we were startled by flocks of birds appearing outside the living room window. That quiet spectacle struck us as a Christmas greeting. Cedar wax wings on Christmas morning. A wax wing lights on the bough outside my window this cold December morning. And I remember the gift received years ago while we sat among rainbowed wrappings and brilliant bows, department store bounty scattered at our feet. A flock of robins and waxwings, numerous as snowflakes, darkening the same window like a shadow. Four faces pressed to glass, we watched the birds descend lighting on the naked maple tree, red breasts and black eye stripes, yellow tail tips and muted gray wings fluttering, filling the tree with living ornaments. In the air, their morning melody pealed as sacred as silent night, giving benediction before they arose and took flight, leaving an empty tree and spirits graced by wonder. Among the Wax Wings with Rosemary McMahon. We also heard Christmas memories from Judy Cameron and a never-before-aired story from Catherine Tucker Wyndham. Thanks to her very first radio producer, Samuel Hendren, for sharing that story. We'll hear another one later in the show. This is listener-supported 89.3 HD1. Our Sundial Writer's Corner is telling stories here on the Public Radio Hour. If you'd like to listen to this Sundial Christmas again or share this show, find it at WLRH.org, on our mobile app, and on our social media. We'll be right back. This Saturday at 2 p.m. on Arts Underground, tune in Joy to the World, a holiday in pink, co-produced by Oregon Public Broadcasting and Murray Street Productions. The internationally acclaimed Little Orchestra, Pink Martini, bedecks the airwaves with festive holiday songs from across the globe. Your host will be NPR's Ari Shapiro, who also sings in Pink Martini. I'm Katie Ganaway. Hope you'll tune in Saturday at 2 on 89.3 FM HD1, and happy holidays. Hello everyone, I'm Microwave Dave. Yes, it's time for the annual Christmas Blues Show on Talk the Blues, broadcasting this year on Christmas Eve. I'm bringing people like Coco Taylor, John Fahey, Butterbeans and Susie, Jerry Boogie McCain from down in Gaston, Kansas City Kitty, Big Joe Williams, Johnny Moore's Three Blazers, all kinds of folks with great Christmas hit records going back all the way into the 1920s. Saturday evening, 8 o'clock p.m., Talking the Blues on WLRH. Hi there, I'm Morning Blend host, Dory Nutt. As a former musician here in the Tennessee Valley, I know the importance of the free access WLRH gives to nonprofits on our airways. The PSA program that this station offers helps enrich our community in so many ways, and every donation from listeners helps make a difference. Please contribute today at WLRH.org, then click support. And thanks.
You're listening to 89.3 HD1 WLRH. It's a sundial Christmas here on the Public Radio Hour. Tonight we're sharing stories told by the WLRH Sundial Writer's Corner. Visit the Writer's Corner in its regular broadcast time every Monday morning at 9 and explore hundreds of stories in our Sundial archive at wlrh.org. You can also submit your own story. One of the holiday season's most iconic images is the star, a symbol of light in the darkest days of winter, a beacon of hope, or sometimes, on rare occasion, a star of vengeance. Here's Sarah Belanger. My favorite Christmas ornament is a small gold star with a beaded tassel. It's simple and unassuming, but I love it. I always hang it from the most prominent branch on the Christmas tree, and when guests come over, I always point it out to them. While it gives me warm, happy feelings whenever I look at it, it doesn't symbolize peace and goodwill, as it should. Instead, it symbolizes vengeance and spite. I got the star nearly 20 years ago when I was working at a local retailer as a cashier. It was a few days before Christmas, so all of our ornaments were reduced to 75% off. This meant the little star was on sale for 50 cents. That's a great deal for most people, but not for everyone. The woman got out of her Lexus and strode into the store. She was dressed to the nines with a designer purse. Her nails were fake and nicely manicured, as was her hair. She took her time wandering throughout the entire store, complaining as she went. When she finally was done, she came to the register and placed four star ornaments in front of me. I greeted the woman and asked how she was doing today, to which she ignored. Instead, she said, I needed to wrap up these ornaments, and I want them for 90% off, not 75 As we were not a yard sale, that was not something I could do, so I told her no. She was shocked to hear no and retorted, yes, you can. I gently explained that we had a strict policy about price-adjusting holiday merchandise. The woman frowned at me. It's not even that much money, she said. I smiled and said sweetly, oh good, so it shouldn't be a problem for you to pay it. This did not make the woman happy. She argued with me, becoming increasingly rude and belligerent. But I was not interested in getting fired a week before Christmas, so I didn't back down. In frustration, the woman slammed her manicured hand onto the counter and snapped, Fine, just put it on hold for me. My friend works at the other store across town and said that all of the Christmas stuff is going to be 90% off tomorrow. I'll just get it then. I took a deep breath and in my best customer service voice explained, I am so sorry. We are not allowed to put seasonal merchandise on hold. It is corporate policy. You might want to get the ornament now, because unfortunately, I cannot guarantee they'll be here tomorrow. The woman sneered. You'd like that, wouldn't you? And in a mocking voice, she said, Oh, I guess you can't go against corporate policy. I'll just be back tomorrow. There are 12 ornaments back there, so I'm sure I can get at least four. As I watched her leave the store, I was thoroughly annoyed by the entire experience. Christmas is rarely enjoyable when you work retail. The hours are long, stressful, and you rarely get paid more for it. And to make matters worse, entitled individuals think the holidays are all about them getting everything they want. So in an anti-Grinch moment, my heart shrank three sizes that day. At the end of my shift, I gathered all 12 stars and bought them, using my employee discount, of course. Then I called the other store across town, the one where the rude woman's friend worked. Over the phone, I bought all of their ornaments. And just to be extra spiteful, I bought all of the ornaments at the other two stores in our district. It was the most vengeful $40 I'd ever spent. The next morning before we'd even opened, the Lexus was waiting in the parking lot. When we unlocked the doors, the woman strode past, giving me a smirk as she walked to the Christmas section. I waited for her at the register. It took a while, but she finally came back and asked where all the ornaments were. 
I had the pleasure of telling her all of the ornaments in all of North Alabama had been sold to one customer. The look on her face was worth every penny. I had dozens of star ornaments. For years, I gave them away to friends, family, and anyone who could use a little cheer in their life. But I saved one, just one, for myself. 19 years later, it still makes me smile when I hang it on the tree. It's 1962, and Mom handed us the newly arrived Sears and Roebuck Christmas catalog for Brother and I to look through. Our Santa tradition stated only three gifts, so the looking took a long time. We grabbed pencils and notebook paper to write on. Laying on our stomachs on the living room floor with our feet high in the air, we began turning the pages very slowly. We spent hours looking at the catalog, and our list always had dozens of items we liked. Then the actual task began. What do we really want for Christmas? Remember, only three gifts. My list always included a doll. I love dolls. However, this 1962 Christmas was different. I was soon to be a teenager and definitely felt the need to move from dolls to perhaps a hairdryer. You know the kind. The ones with the long hose with a big elastic shower cap attached. Two speeds, high and low. I wrote that down on the list. My second choice was the board game Clue. Then the final request, a Kodak camera. Mom looked pleased with the list, but I did notice her brow creasing just a little. She finally said, well, I see there is no doll on your list. You know you'll want a doll on Christmas morning. All your girl cousins will have a new doll, so let me know what doll you would like. Sighing, okay, Mom, I thought. This did not sound like a negotiable comment. I really don't want a doll this year, I said. I want what's on the Christmas list. Now that brow creasing became the frown, and I knew I was going to get a doll, no matter what, because Mom wanted me to have a doll. So why not make this the last doll? Make it so difficult to find. No, make it impossible to find. I stomped out of the room and began plotting. First, I checked the Sears catalog for dolls writing down the descriptions. Bridal doll, baby doll with pacifier, Barbie doll, baby doll who wets, Chatty Cathy, Madam Alexander, Jenny baby doll. Not asking for these dolls. They're in the catalog. After hours of searching dolls and a few days later, I handed in my revised Christmas list. One, hair dryer. Two, camera. Three, doll with green eyes and red hair braided, freckles on her nose. Her outfit is to be a green jumper with striped shirt underneath, red boots and socks. I knew she would never ever find this doll in Newburn, North Carolina. No toy company makes a green-eyed, red-headed doll with freckles. And smiling, I walked away. The long-awaited Christmas morning arrives. Dad in his undershirt and PJ bottoms and Mom in her robe both have coffee cups in their hands and super big smiles on their faces. My brother dives in first. He wanted a record player that would hold five 45 records on a stack with an automatic record changer. Paper flying as he did the Southern Rebel yell, and there it was, boxed up showing a picture of the new record player on the front of the box. Next, my turn. I reached over the wrap gifts to pick up the large wrap box toward the back. As I moved a few of the presents aside to maneuver my way in, I saw her staring at me with the most perfect grin on her face. No, I said, covering my eyes. Forgetting the large box, I reached over for it and picked up the doll with beautiful green eyes, braided red hair, and a scattering of freckles on her nose and cheeks. She wore a green jumper with a black and white striped shirt underneath. Her ruby red boots sparkled like the Christmas tree lights. Where on earth did you find her? 
My parents just smiled back at me, and my dad winked. Don't you believe in Santa, he said. And I heard my mom say under her breath, and Macy's. What's a memorable story of gift-giving or gift-receiving for you? Now that you're older, you've learned what it really takes to make Christmas magic and that it's always worth it when it creates a treasured memory. Thanks to Doreen Fulcher and her story of the Christmas doll. I'm Brett Tannehill. In that segment, we also heard from Sarah Belanger and her story of Christmas vengeance as part of this Sundial Christmas here on the Public Radio Hour. You can find this entire show and listen again at WLRH.org and on our mobile app. We hope you're enjoying these stories told by your friends, family, and neighbors in our Sundial Writer's Corner. We received a couple of early Christmas presents here at WLRH that we're sharing with you tonight. Two never-before-broadcast stories by master storyteller and author Catherine Tucker Wyndham, remembering the holidays back from the old days. Let's hear about another of the holidays' most beloved traditions. I was almost grown before I heard that chorus in Thomasville, Alabama at Christmas time. It was a simpler time, and I don't guess we had a chorus in Thomasville that could have mastered that music. Perhaps we did. Our Christmas celebration began so quietly and so simply that I suppose only Mother was really aware of it. I remember in early November... She would go get the mail and come back home with a little package wrapped in brown paper. She would bear it into the kitchen and and say to whoever might be there, Look, my bulbs have come from Van Antwerp's. Mobile, store where she always bought her Narcissus bulbs. And for Mother... That was the first part of getting ready for Christmas, to get those Narcissus bulbs planted. And she planted them in low bowls, and I always had to help her find the bowls to hold those bulbs. Somehow they always got lost from Christmas to Christmas. And then I drew a bucket of water from the well on the back porch and poured it carefully around the bulbs that were held in place by pebbles, I guess some of those pebbles may have come from the creek in Hill's Pasture. I really don't know where they came. We we didn't even have graveled roads in Thomasville then, so I didn't. I know she didn't get them from the roadside. But we'd pour the water around those brown bulbs that always looked to me like onions, and I never thought that they held much possibility of beauty. She'd put those bowls carefully on a shelf in the closet dark recesses there and I would forget all about them but every now and then periodically during those weeks waiting for Christmas mother would check on the growth of the bulbs and add a little water as necessary and then miraculously always just at Christmas time they would bloom those paper-white narcissus, those tall stems of fragrant blossoms. And Mother would come triumphantly bearing them out, saying, Look, aren't they wonderful? And their beauty was wonderful. Wonderful is the beauty of Christmas. I don't want to wait anymore, Mama. I don't want to sing tonight. And that old Christmas tree is sticky. We're never going to open those presents. Joseph and his mother were rounding the house, going to the bird feeders to fill them. Oh, joy, said his mother. It does seem like Christmas has been here a long time. 
but you'll sing with the children tonight, and we will open those presents in four more days. That's when we will celebrate the baby, and Santa will come. I don't want to go, declared Joey. I thought you liked those songs. Mother reached for the ladder so Joey could climb up. I know you like jingle bells and deck the hall. Your favorite is, Jesus, our brother, kind and good, was humbly born in a stable rude, and the friendly beasts around him stood. Jesus, our brother, kind and good. As she talked, Joy pulled off the lid of the garbage can where they kept the sunflower seed. Mother picked up the quart jar inside, filled it with Joy climbing up the ladder. He lifted the lid of the feeder, and she began pouring in the sunflower seed. I like them, Mama, he thought for a minute. But I've sung them enough. I want to sing something else. He came down the ladder. Will you please open the other can, Joy? He pulled off the lid. Look, Mama, there's something in the jar. Oh, it's a little mouse, she cried. How did it get in, Mama? I'm not sure, Joseph, but little mice can wiggle through tiny holes. Look here at the top of the can. The mouse has gnawed off just enough to squeeze in. They stood silently looking at the little creature in the glass jar. Mama, you set a trap for that mouse in the kitchen. Are you going to kill this one? Mother thought a minute. No, I don't think so. Why? Well, Joseph, she finally said, it's Christmas. We can give the mouse a gift. We can give him his life. She waited a minute. And because of St. Francis. Who? Hey, I'll tell you about him when we go inside. She picked up the jar and tilted it sideways. The mouse sprang out and disappeared in the shrubbery. As they went toward the back door, Joy started singing, I sent the dove from the rafters high. I sang him to sleep, my maid and I. Back in the house, they sat down on the couch in front of the fire. Mother was holding a big picture book. Do you see these words, Joey? He nodded. They say, St. Francis and his brothers. But Mama, I don't see any more people. I see just animals. Yes, Joseph. You see, St. Francis, who lived a long time ago, thought all the creatures were his brothers and sisters. He fed them and talked to them and loved them like his family. They turned the pages, looking at the pictures. Look, Mama, Joseph cried. Here's the baby with the animals. It looks like our baby and the animals over there. Joseph pointed to the shelf where some wooden figures stood. He said, there's the baby and Mary and Joseph, like my name, and wise men and angels. Yes, agreed his mother, and it was St. Francis who first put those figures together. Some people call it a manger scene. Some call it a crash. Some call it the nativity. Just then the doorbell rang. Joy ran to the door and saw a big truck in the street. The man at the door was holding a package. Joey opened the door. I have a package for Joseph Cady. Does he live here? I'm Joseph Cady. Then this is for you. Joey took the package to the couch. Who is it from, Mama? It's from Gran. She says, open today. Joey tore into the box with a little help from his mother. He found inside a crash with a baby, Mary, Joseph, and almost as many animals as Noah had on his ark. All morning, Joey played with his present, arranging the figure one way and then another. Mother noticed that he was singing, la, 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 as he worked. Other times he was singing, I said the donkey, all shaggy and brown, I carried his mother to Bethlehem town. Suddenly he called, Mama, I'm hungry. She sang to the tune of Jingle Bells, Lunchtime, Joseph, lunchtime, Joseph, come and eat your lunch. Joey laughed a merry, merry sound. He finished his peanut butter and crackers, then the apple. He upended the glass of milk and drank it all down. Mama, I think I want to sing tonight. Let's go see if the mouse is eating the birdseed. seed. 
That was Sarah McDerris and Too Much for Christmas. Sarah is a lifelong creator and musician and also hosted the local public television show Grunches and Grins back in the day. We also heard another never-before-aired Christmas memory from Catherine Tucker Wyndham. This is A Sundial Christmas on the Public Radio Hour on listener-supported 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. We hope that you're remembering and telling your favorite stories with the people around you. You can also share your stories with us in the Sundial Writer's Corner and leave a comment on our website and mobile app where you can also listen to and share this show. That's at WLRH.org. Let's close the program with this remembrance from Monita Sony. He came home after a fortnight. It was almost Christmas. We were waiting, waiting for him. His words, his laughter, travel tales rehearsed many times over to entertain us. His frame in the doorway warmed the cockles of our heart. His voice reverberated in the apartment, a deep baritone that transformed to a deliciously soft tenor when he sang us lullabies. We opened his black leather briefcase to look for mementos. We could always decipher his cryptic code. He was a man with no secrets. The presents this time were wrapped in gold leaf pink tissue. With trembling fingers and without adult supervision, we undid the wrapping. What we saw took our breath away. It was an inexpensive piece, but befitting the Maharani of Rajasthan or Marie Antoinette. Cleverly handcrafted to be worn from both sides, this one was for mom, we said, as we admired the piece encrusted with gold and embellished with sparkling gems. But there were two sweet small pendant chains in matte finish also, one in emerald green and the other in navy blue. We chose our colors and slipped them on. Our eyes sparkle like the white kundans in the jewelry. We placed the red necklace on a tray and brought it out into the living room. Dad was sitting on the sofa, grinning his ubiquitous wide grin. Right then, the doorbell rang. Who could that be? It was his younger sister, our baby Bua. What an unexpected surprise, he said, welcoming her in. We passed the gift to our mother. She held it in her hands and admired the smooth, lacquered surface. Her face brightened at the artistry. Layer upon layer upon layer of sheen was added to this, she said, to make it waterproof and durable. Mom passed it to my aunt to hold and admire. This 5,000-year-old technique, the dusting of gold and intricately painted patterns. Now it was her turn to be bewitched by the sheer beauty of the necklace. But our dad was in a conundrum. There were four girls and only three necklaces. He reached into his bag and retrieved glass bangles. Here, you can have these, he offered self-consciously to his sister, not having the heart to ask us to part with one of our chains. But she brusquely pushed his hand away. His eyes implored her with the humility of her brother, not wanting to hurt his sister. She could have put his awkwardness to ease by accepting the peace offering. But she said, no. We tripped out of the room to admire our gifts in the looking glass. Our mother carefully packed her present away in the Godraj Almara. His sister went to unpack. Soon it was dinner time. Fifty years have passed since that incident and perhaps other jewels have passed through the hands of the four girls in this story. But the one who still has the lacquered piece remembers the incident every time she wears the inexpensive but priceless necklace. There were one lakh, hundred thousand emotions in that moment. A father's generosity, his eye for detail, love of beauty, compassion, a brother's sheepishness at not having an equally pleasing gift for his sister, the sister's huff at a brother who loved her, 
memories of a sister claiming all gifts for herself before others came into his life. The gift of his gentle presence, a blessing of family during Christmas time, the gift of the Magi. Today, the silk cord of the attractive choker hugs my throat just above the curved collarbones. I wear the turquoise side to rhyme with the azure of the firmament and the blue pond. I lower my ankles into the water. The sweet sound of silver bells mingles with splish, splash of water. I count the ripples one by one. A thousand petal lotus blooms. My parents' faces emerge. His face is wreathed in smiles. A beam of light filters through the frangipani tree in the patio. A single ray alights on the tip of his straight nose. I unconsciously flare my nostrils, just like him. A sweet smile forms on my mother's lips. The moment holds magic of a palace of mirrors. A woman adds coal to her eyes and lets the dye hover over her face for a split second, imperceptibly over her beauty spot. They, then they walk away, hand in hand, love and longing mingle. A kaleidoscope of memories. Their love transforms into a rosary. His name becomes an endearment. He is garlanded a million times over. With fragrant flowers, I pack the necklace for my aunt. The lacquer seals the gift. That was A Christmas Story from Monita Sony, one of our Sundial Writers Corner contributors. Thanks for listening to A Sundial Christmas here on the Public Radio Hour, and thanks to all of our tellers, Monita Sony, Sarah McDerris, Sarah Belanger, Doreen Fulcher, Rosemary McMahon, Judy Cameron, Michael Gillibeau, Melissa Ford Thornton, and Catherine Tucker Wyndham. Enjoy these stories again and explore the Sundial archives, hundreds of stories and commentaries from Tennessee Valley Wordsmiths on our website at WLRH.org. Look under programs for the Sundial Writers' Corner or the Public Radio Hour. And a special shout out and much love to Judy Waters. She co-founded Sundial back in WLRH's early days with her husband Harry and also Wayne Blackwell. And all the peace and joy to you. We're happy to be with you here on WLRH. Merry Christmas, thanks for listening, and Happy New Year.